I had to also build my own voice since I was young and I was yeah. a woman in a man's world. It was a huge learning curve for me at that time. Hey, Anna, great to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. Hey, obviously really curious about every guest that jumps on about their career journey. So it sounds like you were in corporate world, you were doing really well at HP, and then you jump out and you decide to do this. So tell us as to what you're doing and how you get got to this place. Yeah, I always have my heart in marketing, in marketing. So I'm a marketer at heart and a founder second. Um, started my career at HP, like you mentioned, first in London. And I became the youngest uh, board member for HP UK and Ireland at 23 years old, the only woman, the only immigrant on that board. Uh, so it was a, a very exciting time to really get my hands dirty with marketing, with sales. It was very much enterprise sales at that point. And I learned a ton, not only on how to drive marketing, but really how marketing fits into kind of overall strategy of a company that is growing. And from that moment, HP moved me to the US to take over the North America marketing team for one of the business units that we had there, which is the labels and packaging. And for people who don't know that, actually, the printing of labels and packaging is one of the most profitable business units for HP. I worked with the team there for about two years, and that's when I started working with a global team and a lot on our digital experiences. Up until then, it was very much in person and very kind of... ABM one-to-one, -one, but when I got to the US, we thought of how do we impact the global community? And, and as part of that, we were doing a lot of, we were investing a lot into our digital experiences for the website, uh, a lot of the content and a big go-to-market activity that we would do would be webinars and live sessions with our partners. And the reason why I started SQL is that it was very frustrating that we've spent so many resources and so much time and, and really good content to put together into these experiences that we created. But using On24 and Zoom and the other platforms would take everyone away from everything that we've built as a digital journey. So I realized that I was not the only marketer frustrated with this, which led me to starting SQL that basically solving this for marketing marketers worldwide. Pretty awesome. I obviously will come to SQL, but do want to go back in time. You became an ex the only woman in the boardroom at age of 24, what, age of 23. What was so special about you back then? Have you ever paused and reflected? Because that's quite an achievement in itself. I think I was naive. <laughs> Honestly, like the I genuinely think that's an honest answer. I was 23 years old, 22 years old when I started working full-time for HP. First, I was an intern. Then they asked me to come as a full-time. I worked under an amazing manager, Julia Cole, who taught me, showed me everything that can be done. And then as she moved on, I took over her role. And probably the reason that I got to, to that point is I asked for it. And I don't know if with my experience now, if I would have the same courage to do that, but I was always thinking, what's the worst that can happen? I'm just going to ask for it. And I worked really hard. I was in the office until midnight every day and really got my hands dirty across. Like I would go into the sales team and ask them how they're doing things into the business development team. Can I come with you to presentation? So I really understood everything that the team would do. So when my boss at that time moved on, I said, I want to take a role. And they put me through 
a long and painful like recruitment process to make sure I'm the right person. But they also gave me the support that I needed to really step into that role because there were big shoes mm. to fill. And I have to say mm -hmm. that the management board in the UK specifically was great in making me feel welcome. But at the same time, I had to also build my own voice since I was young and I yeah. was a woman in a man's world. It was a huge learning curve for me at that time. Yeah. So much to take away from there. But that experience, how has that shaped you as a leader and as a founder? Because you're building a pretty kick-ass team yourself. So going back to that and relating to today's environment, what were a couple of the key lessons that you learned along the way? I think these two main areas I are basically what made me successful with the company. One is asking for things, like not having not being embarrassed or not being afraid to ask for the business, to ask people to help, to ask people to come to be part of our journey as investors, customers, and employees, and and go into en to anyone, no matter the the role or the company, and ask for for what we think as a company we deserve or what we need to do. And the second thing, as much as we all talk about automation and we talk about working smart. Building a company is working hard. Like you're not going to build a company from nine to five. So I stayed up until four in the morning and built the website, the first website ourselves and build the first product ourselves. And even to this point, I, I still work long hours, even with all the automations and everything is being willing to really put in 150% into what you're building and for your team and for your customers. So I think these two, I took away from my experience in entrepreneurship and carried with me into, sorry, from a corporate and carried with me into an entrepreneurship. I think people are getting better at asking, right? But it's that pairing the asking for things with the work ethic that you drive and not necessarily just ours. It's the work ethic you put in, like going to sales, going to all these different units and learning about it because you want to progress yourself down the path. And that people recognize that sort of stuff, like going above and beyond just your day to day and actually identifying how you fit into the whole. When you're building your business now and you're bringing people on board, you're hiring people, is that something you're looking for? People who've got that same sort of energy and drive that you've got who are going to go beyond making the odd phone call or doing stuff like that? Yes. Obviously, I'm not expecting people to put the same amount of work because it's insane. The way I tell my team is, I signed up for this. But I do have two probably main traits that I look into my team especially at this stage, but I do think that it's important at any stage. I was employee number X thousand at HP, but it's having the business owner mentality. The way I ask my team is like, if this would be your business, what would you do right now? No matter if you're in sales or customers or product, imagine this is your business. And for our team, that is the case since everyone owns part of our business. Like business owner mentality is like, really caring about the work that you're doing uh, at the same level. And the second thing, you're right, work ethic. For us, it's huge. And it's it's about being having work ethic internally with our team as well as externally with our customers and partners and, and being a, a good team player. While people could be extremely good, if you're not a good team player, it's very hard to really build something together. When you're a CEO, you own the thing or you're an executive, you get paid to do massive hours. But work ethic doesn't necessarily have to be hours. It can be what you just said, right? Going that little bit extra to help a customer out or doing a little bit more cross-functional stuff so you're showing an interest in it. 
they're always the things that I guess we were looking for, right? Who's that person? Who cares? Who treats it like their own business? And I think that's an awesome way of looking at it for people who are looking for that early hire. Who's going to come in and go, hey, this is this little patch of turf is my business and I'm going to make it something big. I love that advice. Yeah. Switching up the gear a little bit here. So maybe tell us what's been some of your most rewarding moment as a founder today. It sounds like you've had some big wins, but what are the biggest ones? That's a very good question. Obviously, you never forget your first customer, first and foremost. Bringing in and realizing that what we were building was something that was solving a huge pain point for huge logos. We have customers like Amazon and, and HP and Carta and Comcast. And, and it's really great to see solving such a pain for your customers. And then second, the team, I think for me, is building an incredible team has always been my goal because I think that you can have an incredible product, but if you don't have an incredible team that knows how to work together on building it, marketing it, and helping the customers, it just doesn't matter. From a moment perspective, I think it's there, funnily enough, it was one of those moments when SVB went down a few months ago. Obviously, we were an SVB customer and myself and my co-founder had to step into things and kind of work through the night to figure out like how do we do everything and my leadership team simply sent us a message be like we got it we will run the business so that you can fix things and we're a small company and for mm. our team to step in such a meaningful way so that we can fix other things and give us the space to do that showing that like we said work ethic showing that loyalty to the company basically is a testament of the type of culture that we build for the company and kind of what we attract around us from partners and customers and everyone else. Kudos to you and your leadership team for building such a culture. Anna, then on the flip side, founder's journey is made up of a lot of bumps, right? A lot of mistakes, a lot of errors, a lot of hardship. Can you reflect on a couple of those moments and perhaps go what have been some of the most challenging moments that you had to get through and you've managed to learn a ton, get across the other side of the pond, but it was tough. SVB obviously sounds like was one of those instances, but can you think of a couple of the other ones? It is a roller coaster of a journey, right? The journey of a founder. And very rarely we as founders share the downsides because it's the type of failures that we don't want to admit and this, even to ourselves, let alone to our community. But I think it's important that we all learn from each other. And I see a lot more founders really sharing mistakes and, and challenges that they learn from. So I think it's important. For us specifically, as a challenge, I think because we are in the space of virtual space, like virtual communication, virtual events, webinars, we've been through a very tumultuous few years with the pandemic, building this kind of artificial bubble of virtual communication, uh, then obviously getting out of that and how the new normal looks like. And I think that for us, the Biggest challenge probably that I had is kissing our bets. And, and the biggest mistake that I made at the beginning when we started with the pandemic hit, it was basically to follow what competitors were doing, thinking that's the right way to do it. We, although it was against what we were trying to build, thinking we got to have those features because our competitors have that. We got to have those things because our competitors have that. And because of that, we really didn't have a clear personality. We were trying to, we were saying something, but we were doing something completely different. We were like offering platforms for conferences, although we believed in like recurrent engagement. So it was very hard for us to have also the features of platforms that were built as well as keeping on track with our product. 
And that's the one thing that I've learned. And our customers were confused at the beginning. Wait, are you a platform? Can you support Biki fans? Can you do the small ones? So we took time. Actually, we lost some time trying to figure out like, where do we fit the best? I think that now we're good. We're sad, but it took us some valuable months. So the one lesson that I learned is listen to the markets, see what's going on out there, but go to your customer when you try to build rather than look at competitors. Many founders can just be eaten up from the inside by being obsessed with their competitors and trying to copy or trying to be yes. be better instead of going to the customer and building something for the customer. So we, we learn from those lessons and uh, we built on that. And that's a really solid tip, right? Because even where we come from, I think there was a lot of focus and even not just even the leaders, but the reps and Customer success people, they're just forever telling you about what the competitors are doing and not talking about what the customers are asking for. And all of a sudden, your product roadmap's all messed up and you don't have a brand voice to your point. You mentioned product a couple of times and I do want to touch on that subject. I'm of the opinion the biggest challenge for 90% of the software companies is in building a better product. But I want that thought to be challenged. I, I feel like as we've done more of this, I've, I'm now feel pretty confident in raising my voice, but that's how I feel. What's your view on that? Does product come first? Can product be fixed if you throw enough resources at it? Is it more about the go-to-market? Like you're obviously a marketer, so hence why the question uh, is targeted at you. What comes first? Where does this whole thing sit on a founder's journey? And by this question, you mean product versus marketing, like kind of... Product versus go-to-market. What is, like in terms of when you're trying to scale your business, what matters most? Is it product or is it go-to-market strategy? I'm basing it off the fact that you've built a decent product, yeah, right? Yeah. If you have zero oh, product, yeah. you can't sell it. Like you build something, like where does... You have where, a where's product. The, you have a product. It's reasonable. Like where's the focus going to go? So is it building out a go-to-market? Is it building out your product and your tech team and, and getting that part, right? Like... Is it a mix? Like, where do you see that? I don't think it's a silver bullet. I think it depends on the company. It depends on who you're selling to. I think if you're, if you're selling to, directly to the decision makers and the decision makers are the ones using your product, uh, at the same time, your decision makers are your users, uh, I totally think that product speaks a lot for itself. Obviously, you need to package it. You need to build things around it. But getting the product in the hands of your customers is just... So much better at building that virality, those product loops that everyone loves, mm. right? Now, if you're selling into an organization of, in our situation, like we're selling into CMOs a lot, into kind of demand gen leaders, and many times these people are not really using the product and we're changing the status quo with what we're doing is while we took the time to build an incredible product. And by the way, I, we build that with our customers. I strongly believe yeah. that should be built with your customers. The telling the story about why you're changing, why Zoom webinars are so bad, basically. Everyone's using this, like changing that story, challenging the status quo and building a community with the people who are making a decision about your product is where go-to-market wins. Like you said, Sean, like obviously when the go-to-market wins, the product has to work, has to be impressive as well. But the go-to-market has to be the one that kind of builds up that entire narrative. So it just depends on the type of company that you build. Do you build like a Slack or do you build like a HubSpot? So it depends on how you're viewing it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So how do you then look at your product roadmap? You mentioned quite a bit about building with the customers and getting the feedback and then keeping an eye on the competitors, but not necessarily following the trend. 
So how do you find that balance? And also then obviously there's disruptive technologies like AI and stuff. So how do you bag all that up and go, this is where we're going to head and this is what's coming up next quarter? What does that look like for you? Like I said, we build with our customers. And I, I know many companies say that, but we genuinely build with our customers' feedback. We do not build a feature until our customers have felt the pain and we validated that a good chunk of our customers are looking for that. And we did that from the beginning. That's why we actually built SQL in a way that is like an embeddable experience. We validated that's a pain point for marketers worldwide, and we kept doing that. We do a lot of customer interviews. Our customers are amazing. Mm -hmm. They give us so much feedback. We have QBRs. We have check-ins. Our head of product does that all the time. Every month or every quarter, depending on our planning uh, he puts together every single feature that we could potentially build and we rank it uh, based on the importance and and the pain points that basically we're solving on that. And that's basically how we come up with priorities. We don't necessarily, we don't build features to be apples to apples. Like what our competitors are right. doing, let's build that feature as well. Once we made that mistake, we knew that our customers are the one kind of di dictating it. And that actually helped us navigate the AI craze, right? So every single company right now has an AI feature. And the moment it, like GPT-4 came around, my entire engineering team is like, oh my God, we're going to build so much AI. And I've never seen them so committed. And they had so many ideas. And we're like, we're going to work through this. And then I'm like, stop. Why are we building? Why do we want to build these things? So instead of building what kind of features we want with AI, I erased that entire whiteboard. And I said, let's start with the problems. What are our customers' problems right now? What are we trying to solve? Generally, don't think of AI at all. Just like, what are we trying to solve? And then once we made the list of those uh, challenges for our customers, we are like, now where can we apply AI to solve it? And that was a much better way of doing it. And we noticed that AI can be solved into purposing of video content and kind of snackable content in their automations in the on tracking and business intelligence. So that's where we focused instead of saying, let's do all these things in AI and then we'll figure out how our customers will use it. So we do also obviously have AI, but it's just with our customer insight into what they're looking for and how do we solve pain points for that. I think you probably answered the question for me with the way you think about development. But though, look, I love the customer-focused development part. Customers generally, when they're shopping for their piece of software, whatever it is, it's a challenge they're facing now. And they're not generally talking about potential shifts in their space or challenges that may occur. So that future innovation component that they're going to eventually look to you to solve. But it sounds like you solve that by identifying the problems that you're seeing for customers. And then you guys are brainstorming because the, the bit, I think, whenever I've seen people like, and, and we've run like customer voice stuff and we've had like. People vote on stuff and all that sort of stuff. And generally you're getting the now problems. This is an issue now and solve it now and you can develop for that. And then they get hit in the face by a change that you could have seen. So you've got enough data to show where it's going and you're behind the eight ball in development. How do you keep a track abreast of trying to make sure that you're developing stuff that's going to be super important for the industries you serve early? I think that it's, it, it's asking the customers less about what features you want, but more about the issues that they have and what they're looking to do. Because if you ask them for features, you're basically asking your customers to solve the problem for you. Uh, yeah. But just ask them their, about their experience. And the way we innovate is more looking at their experience and we find innovative ways to 
fix that. Many times customers are like, oh, we would love an in integration with this. But the question is like the why. There is the five mm -hmm. whys. It's like, why do you want that? Because we want our team to be a lot faster. But why would you like that? Because we keep on why to get to the kind of the core of the problem. And that's when that's when we start thinking, how can we solve that in an innovative way? And there are certain things that we're developing that no one ever heard of. Sometimes we look at each other, can we actually build this? And that's where the innovation starts because we just have, we're solving that problem in just an innovative way that pushes the market forward. That's differentiating yeah. from asking what they want built, feature asking, which is a lot of what we did back in the day in reality, and then actually understanding what your customer is looking for. I think that's a really important distinction and tip. Don't make it sound too bad, man. Come on. Oh, at the time we were doing it, we were asking yeah. customers, but right, not exactly. in that same, not in the same way that you're talking about, no. which I think is super powerful, right? It's, it's not asking, hey, what would you like to see here? Or what are we missing? It's how are you using this? What are you finding? Mm. Really deep diving into the why behind what a customer is looking for, I think is super powerful. So true. I do want to ask you about pricing strategy, Anna. If you're not doing any comparison, there's no apples to apples. So for a lot of people that we speak to now and people that are listening to this, early stage founders, what is your advice on pricing strategy? Where should you even begin? And you would have gone through the journey yourself. So can you give us practical tips on how to go about doing that? Oh my God, that was the hardest thing we've done. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute hardest thing we've done in the company, I think. Building product was much easier than pricing. Pricing is really hard. It's so we're starting with, indeed, you're not comparing apples to apples, but you're thinking of like, where would your customers solve this problem if you wouldn't be with you? And it could be a multitude of tools. It could be hours put by someone manually to do the work, mm. and there's not actually a technology for it. So understanding the cost of switching in that sense as well, and, and developing an, an early kind of pricing structure, I would say that especially at the beginning for us, and I know that's the case for a lot of founders, like our pricing changed on a monthly basis. Literally, you, wow. if you spend too much time figuring out pricing, it's just going to eat up from a lot of the time where you could learn what works. At the beginning, we didn't publicize pricing because we were testing so much. So we would put pricing in front of our customers. We would see how we would land. We would tweak a little bit in there. Sometimes one of my customers called me one day. They're like, are you sure you didn't miss a zero in the proposal, that's when I realized it was too cheap. So I was like, okay, probably we need to go a little bit more expensive. So it was years of tweaking the pricing, also looking at the market and looking at what we're replacing as a whole, not necessarily a, a specific solution or like a suite of solutions. And that really got us to where we are today. Um, and we, the moment we knew that our pricing is fair and it has value for us, that's when we made it public on our website. And now we have it public, like we have a start and a growth. Uh, we have a pretty standardized kind of business plan as well as an enterprise plan. So we're in a kind of a solid situation, but it was so much experimentation and we're still experimenting mm. annually, monthly, but it's all about understanding what your customers are are doing right now and the value that you're providing them with um, and, uh, and constant experimentation. Again, love that. Love the practical tips. You mentioned that you've gone live and you publicize on the website. A lot of companies don't, especially B2B SaaS, they gate it. What was the thought behind it, the decision-making process for, for you to go, actually, we're just going to publish it. 
let customers decide. Can you walk us through that, please? You're right. Actually, very few companies also in our industry have pricing publicized on their website. But I decided to not only be disruptive with product, but also in the business model and to run a pretty transparent organization to a point where I know that if two customers talk to each other, they'll get the same pricing. Sure, we have discounts. We might have things that we're running for campaigns, but ultimately we want to be pretty transparent in kind of what you're getting. And we've, we know it's fair considering like the amount of customers that we have on these prices. So that's why it's just a matter of like how we want to build the business. And for us, transparency was a big deal. And that's why we decided to publicize it. You just keep giving me nuggets to deep dive into discounting. So when is a good time to discount? I'm going to ask you two questions at once. And when is it the wrong time to discount? <laughs> discounting can be an hour long debate. It's, <laughs> there's so many different opinions and I don't fully disagree or agree with any of them, really, because like everyone yeah. has, depending on their business, has like a good point. For us, we're not necessarily afraid of discounts depending on how we're using them. So we have some discounts for um, our sister portfolio companies, like other companies that we have similar investors just because we're kind of founder friends in that sense. We have discounts for NGOs, uh, nonprofit organizations, because we want to support them a little bit further. Uh, I think discounts, and then obviously there's campaigns, like we do a buyback campaign. Um, sometimes people pay for a year long with a certain subscriber, like an on 24, and they want to move away. So we have a discount for them to migrate earlier. The wrong time to discount is in the sales process when you think that the only way to win a customer is to discount. We're not using discounts as a way to get your best because we're the cheapest solution and you just have to run with us. And this is the last kind of thread where we can get you in. I think that's the wrong time. That means that you, either your solution is not the right fit for the customer, or you didn't do a good job to really talk about the value and why this is going to really change their business. So I think that is the by far the worst time. And when your customer is saying that, or like a prospect, someone you're trying to, to sell is talking about certain features that are not there or like certain things that they're not a fit. But what if it's cheaper? It doesn't matter. So that's the wrong time to discount. Screams desperation. Every time you do it, right? Exactly. Um, from a founder's mindset, we're now in Q4 of 2023. 2024 is literally around the corner. I'm sure you've deep into budget planning and lots of conversations are being held internally. How are you looking at that? What does 2024 look like? What's the planning process for you and SQL team? We're very excited about 2024. We really are. We have so many things going on in the business. And like I was mentioning before, we even got in here, we're onboarding so many new customers now at the end of the year, which means that we get to grow with them next year. So that's very exciting. In terms of how we're doing planning, we're... We, we made it into a monthly planning for us. So we do some yearly planning, but because we want to move fast and experiment fast, we actually plan every month. We set objectives, we set goals, and we check on them on a weekly basis and, and see how we're doing against those. Uh, obviously, as a whole for, for the year, I think that one of the biggest things we'll invest a lot more in is partnerships in our ecosystem. We're partnering with some incredible companies like Chili Piper and Mutiny and Six Sense and, and so many others to really bring more value to our community of marketers, marketing leaders. Together, we're stronger in providing the best support for them. So partnerships make us really excited and also product innovation. 
I we have some really interesting things coming out of product. It's not AI. I'm sorry to disappoint. <laughs> uh, it's very exciting that really will elevate everything that marketers were able to do, especially with webinars and, and kind of video content ever before. So these two areas are the, the things that excite us the most uh, about 2024. Yeah, super exciting. Ona, if you had to just give one tip, and one tip only to someone who's starting, who's thinking about starting their entrepreneur journey or finding a company, what would that be with all your experience? I think that as you're starting the entrepreneurial journey, to give a bit of background, I'm an immigrant founder, which means that I can do a friends and family round. I don't have friends and family that could invest in the company, or I didn't know anyone here in, in the US to, to help us. And the one thing that really made me a better founder, a better CEO, uh, and a team member was surrounding myself with like-minded people. If you're starting your entrepreneurship journey, go talk to the CEOs, talk to all the founders and build that community. There's so many communities out there, go to events, because that was the number one way I learned how to do better at everything. And even to this point, while there is still, we've done a lot, there's still so much more to learn. So I think it's all about building that network of founders. Be friends with investors early on if you're planning to be in a VC-backed company. If not, that's amazing too. So you don't have to follow the VC route. So it builds the community of the founders and the CEOs that you strive to be as you build up your company. Love that. Connection. Connect with people. Yeah. More than anything, right? Hey, look, thank you for that. Now that we've got the easy stuff out of the way, we'll move through the quick fire round. Every guest that jumps on the show, you may have heard it. We ask them the same question. So we'll start off with the easy one for you, Anna. Um, favorite sports team? I'm not a football fan, so I play tennis. And I, from a tennis player perspective, Federer and, and Halep, which is our Romanian tennis player. Oh, nice. Um, tennis is a sport. That's totally fine. Yeah. It's not a it's an this, is the, this is the first True. try for tennis, so I think this yeah. one counts, but absolutely. Yeah. Um, we might have to change it from team, favorite team to like just favorite, favorite sport, sport identity. You've changed it for us now. Favorite music type? Alternative. Nice. How about favorite movie? Have one? Un jeu d'enfant. It's, yeah, it's French. It's, well, yeah, yeah. Love Me If You There is the title in English, but Un jeu d'enfant is the original title. Yeah, sounds much better that way. Hey, I don't know. Like, I mean, she just said alternative in music and you just... Passed by because she didn't say hip hop. We didn't oh, dive no, into that I at all. Want, I, don't, I don't want to be too disruptive there. We, the stats are coming out <laughs> later on the year. So the, the running joke is most of the guests who have done it, their favorite music is hip hop. So what we, we're going to put out these little stats by the end of the year to go. In order to be successful in B2B SaaS, you have to be a hip hop lover. You have to love basketball and some of these <laughs> yeah. little fun topics. All Ricky's right? favorite thing. So <laughs> when you say alternative, like what's the, what, what alternative music are you into? I mean, I don't know if it's like a fully considered alternative, but like Muse or Arctic Monkeys became more alternative. They used to be like rock yeah. in the past, like stuff like that. Got it. Yeah. Good. You're, you're I got that, man. Side. I got yeah. that. It's not right. I can't tell because you don't know what hip hop is. So I was <laughs> like, <laughs> that is true. Favorite place to visit or a place that's on your bucket list, either or. A place that I always love going back to is Spain. Whereabouts in Spain? I lived in Barcelona for a bit in, and then we just travel. I haven't seen South of Spain as much. So that's yeah. on my bucket list as well as loving to visit. Oh, nice. And this is the main one. I know, you know. Peanut butter. How do you like yours? Crunchy or smooth? 
I don't like peanut butter. <laughs> good tell. Like, don't ask you this question. There's been a few votes for this whole I don't like oh, peanut yeah, butter yeah. thing, which is weirding me out. But yeah. Some are like, oh, it's not healthy for me. Look at all the <laughs> ingredients. There's healthy versions too, but sounds the like disgusting, you're, you're fully out. Yeah, yeah. If you I were like four. I failed this questionnaire already. <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's been a blast. Thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing all your insights. It's been fun. Likewise, Ricky, Sean, very nice to be here and to share my journey. Thank you.